0: There. Acts chapter 23, if you remember last week we had started and we got to about verse 5, we had started talking about the conscious last week and uh, the various things about the conscious, don't, never let your conscious be your guide and, and things of that nature, we let the word of God and the Lord be our guide and um, you're in the word long enough, your conscious will agree with the word of God and so uh, you'll find that to be true. But we didn't get started uh, very long before we kind of got stopped, but I would love to, uh, we we won't know how long we're gonna go. But as a a quick recap that Lysias, he is the captain of the guard. And for the last couple chapters, uh, we know that Paul had been detained by the Jewish zealots and they had spread this rumor about him uh, bringing Gentiles into the temple you know, it was one thing, and they thought that Paul was anti-law, anti-Moses, and anti-circumcision, and they had brought up all these accusa- accusations against Paul. And so finally, uh, they just swarmed Paul, the, the Jews swarmed him, and would have killed him. But we know Lysias, Claudius Lysias, was the captain of the guard, and his job as a Roman uh, guard uh, was to keep the peace there in Jerusalem. And so him and the centurions went down and rescued Paul from that, and what Lysias needed to know was what Paul was charged with. Uh, Lysias later found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and it's very prudent, it's very important that a Roman citizen knows what they're being charged with, and why they're being detained, why they're being arrested. So Lysias Decided. well, he's not getting a clear answer because you can't get a clear answer from a mob. You really can't. They have no idea why they're there. You see probably people interviewed in mobs, and they don't know why they're there. I mean, even today, you get a riot or a mob, and they don't know why they're angry. Um, So Lysias decided to call the council, the Jewish council, and he thought maybe he could get answers that way. So he calls the Sanhedrin, to come up there. And it wasn't an official Sanhedrin meeting. It was a meeting that they had come, and so Lysias could find out exactly what was... Why, why were they trying to kill Paul? But even that, we see this right now in verse 1 and through verse 5 we saw last week, Paul's approach was a personal approach. And in verse 1 he says... In chapter 23, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that, that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So now Paul is going to switch his approach. He did have a personal approach, and he got hit in the mouth for it by the evil high priest, Ananias. We talked about him, and not to confuse him with Annas. In verse 6, Paul switches his approach to doctrinal. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle." And the night following the Lord stood by him and said Be of good cheer Paul for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now I want to just recap these verses which we went over a little bit quicker than we usually we're not going to do a heavy exposition of these because it's actually verses 12 through 35 love to get through tonight. So Quickly, we see that Paul had changed his tactic. And, you know, Jesus says, Behold, I send you as sheep among wolves. Now be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now a lot of people will say, Well, Paul, what's he doing? Is he playing politics? Is is, is he wanting to, uh, is he fake here? And he's really not. He's not at all playing politics. And what is it about what Paul said here in verse 6? He says, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. Now John Gill had good notes on this. Paul didn't say I was a Pharisee. He said I am a Pharisee. Now that might sit a little different. But if you think about what he's done here, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in afterlife, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the spirit, they didn't believe in any of those things, and there was such a a distinction between what the Pharisees believed and what the Sadducees believed. Paul is saying, I am a, a Pharisee, I'm in the camp of the Pharisee, but at this time, He can say, I'm a Pharisee, without believing everything that the Pharisees stood for. Paul was raised, his dad was a Pharisee, and he was in that whole thing, and he was raised as a Pharisee. That's what he said um, uh, here, and he says, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, verse 6, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And that really was what he was called in question for. He was preaching Christ, Christ crucified and raised again. And so it's an interesting approach which Paul, he perceives. And isn't that something that here all of the Jews, all the Sadducees and the Pharisees, now remember, the Sanhedrin was comprised of both. and the Sanhedrin you had three offices. You had the high priest, you had the elders, and you had the scribes any of those three offices could have been a Sadducee or a Pharisee. It just so happens that the high priest here is a Sadducee. They don't believe in the resurrection, and you've heard that before, and that's why they're sad, you see. Right? They don't believe in the resurrection, that's why they're sad, you see. And that's a good way to remember it. So Paul perceiving this, and it's very interesting how Paul, just by throwing that out, well, half of them now are defending Paul. And then the other half, and then now they're going at each other. If anything, Paul exposed just what a mockery of what the the inner turmoil and fight that they had. They couldn't even be united in uh, Paul here. So, Paul gets rescued again by Lysias, because Lysias comes in by force, and he's like, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to get an answer from the council of what Paul's charged with. He still has no idea. What the charge Paul... All Lysias knows at this point is that the Jews want to kill this man and I cannot permit the Jews to kill this man while he's in my custody. A Roman guard, if they had a prisoner or someone in their custody and they were killed, they might as well have just signed their own death sentence. We're going to find out that the things that interest Lysias, self-interest, are going to align with the best thing for Paul as well. Tonight we're going to talk about the providence of God. How the providence of God and his protection of Paul. You know what the sweet thing here is? Is that Jesus came to Paul. And in verse 11, and he says, Be of good cheer, Paul. Now that be of good cheer, In the Greek, it's one Greek word, and what it means is be courageous. Remove fear, remove doubt, remove anxiety, which will only enhance discouragement. But Jesus does a one-on-one here with Paul to show his care of Paul, his concern, his love for him. And notice that he calls Paul by name. He calls him by name. This expresses not only the singular knowledge, the singular uh, love here in this moment that Jesus has for Paul, but an affection for him. Jesus loves Paul. Um, And we know that many verses, just how powerful having your name called is. There's actually a science behind it. When you hear your name called, It increases your dopamine and your serotonin. It's the same hearing your name called is the same effect as seeing your face in the mirror. It has a calming effect. Not only is there like an attention, you've got my attention now that you know my name. But think of all the ways Jesus uses his saints' names. He says, Martha, Martha, you're so busy and you're doing this and you're doing that. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And even when Jesus saves Paul, what did he do? He goes, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And, you know, I just, I love that. I love that Jesus calls Paul by name in a comfort to Paul. Now, think about this. Paul just escaped again from almost being killed and here he is, locked up. And think about him rehearsing what's happening through the day. That he could have been discouraged. He could have, you know, all of the things, I mean, who, who knows? He, he may have still been hurting from the beatings which they gave him. They were trying to beat him to death. But Jesus comes and he cheers. A be of good cheer. Be courageous, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Jesus came personally to Paul, and I love the verses that the sheep, his sheep, hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. John ten three. In Luke twelve seven, we know that every hair on our head is numbered. And I just love that Paul says that he's the God of all comfort in Corinthians. When you know, when we need comforted, God comforts us. And he does not fail to comfort us. When we need the comfort that God gives, he gives it to us. And even though Paul was in this situation, but also notice this about what Jesus says. He reassures Paul of his providence, of his providence. Now, the underlying beautiful truth that we're getting ready to see for the next verses, it's a very, it's a historical narrative of Paul. It just tells you what happens to Paul. We're going to read these next verses and it's just going to be like I'm telling you a story about Paul. Paul. There's no explicit doctrinal or theological uh, teaching in here, nor is there a practical exhortation. But what we do see, and what we see many times in the Word of God, is God's providence underlining the whole way, like the book of Esther. You see God's providence leading and guiding and orchestrating all of the the events that's going on. So in what we're getting ready to read, it's a beautiful beautiful symphony of God's providence. And providence is God's sovereign control over and controlling every natural circumstance to accomplish His will. I'm going to say it again. Providence is God's sovereign and complete control and His determination to accomplish using the natural things around you to accomplish his will in your life. There are no accidents. There's no chances. Um, one of the things that was kind of frowned upon when I grew up was don't say good luck. Don't say good luck. Uh, Dad would always say there's no such thing as luck. It's such an easy thing to say. Don't, you know, there is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such things as in the nick of time, or boy, that was close, or this or that. It's God's providence, is His complete and sovereign control and His determination to accomplish all things after His will using natural situations in your life. He is the great conductor. He is, the, he is the one who is in your life, each one of our lives is a symphony that God is conducting. And my, the providence which he has for me, the plan and the purpose he has for my life may overlap with the plan and the purpose he has for your life. And obviously, we've come together, and we know each other, and we love each other, and we're encouraging to each other. So when we see that Paul is escaping just in the nick of time and the nick of time and this and that, Let's read for the next few verses and be down deep in our heart and look for the providence of God in this situation. Verse 12, and when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief, chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though he would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Now, I want to deal with the 12 through 15. 12 through 15 is the plot against Paul, the plot by the Jews. In verses 16 through 22, we see the plot is discovered, and in the rest of the chapter, we're going to see how the plot falls apart. Um. This oath in verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse. That word curse is anathematized. They anathematized themselves. Now, many of you all know what the word anathema is. Uh, Paul uses it in Galatians chapter 1. If anybody, even an angel, comes down and preaches you to any other gospel, let them be anathema, let them be cursed. So this oath which these Jews are taking, they are inviting God's wrath, His destructive curse upon themselves if they do not accomplish what they swear to do. And they swear to kill Paul. In verse 12 and verse 13, and they'll neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. In verse 13, and when there were more than 40, which had made this conspiracy. Now, they take matters into their own hands. At this point, we kind of assume, by them doing this, that they know they're not going to be able to execute Paul the way they want to, using Roman law. I mean, here's twice that, they, that Paul's escaped their clutches by Claudius Lysias. So they know they're not going to get satisfaction. So they, they're going to plot to kill him. It's kind of like if you think about the Lee Harvey Oswald, you know. I mean, he he was in custody with the police and and everything. And here's Paul in custody of the Roman soldiers. And now they're going to plot to assassinate Paul, murder him. And verse 14, they say, well, here's our plan. Now they go to the Sanhedrin, not the Pharisees but the Sadducees of the the Sanhedrin, which the chief priest was, and they said, all right, we're going to formulate this plan, and we are going to say, hey, why don't you call Claudius, Lysias, and say, we have some more things we want to ask Paul, and when on in route to come to you, they're going to plot this killing. Now, we see the plot is made. In verse 16 through 22, it's discovered. Verse 16, And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who has something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for they are lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, see thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. In verse 16, of all the people that heard overheard the plan, it got leaked. The plot got leaked. Now, there's 40 Jews, and the half of the Sanhedrin, if it's half uh, Sadducee, that might have got leaked that way. But of all the people, it's Paul's nephew. We have not heard anything about Paul's family at all. And actually, there's not much mention about Paul's family whatsoever in the Bible. We know that Paul has a sister from the Bible. We know that Paul has uh, a nephew, his sister's son. We know that Paul has a father who was a Pharisee. But we don't, never talked about his mother. Uh, We know that Paul was not married when he wrote to Corinth. But we kind of suspect Paul used to be married because he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees had to be married. And actually, you weren't considered a Jew, a man to a Jew, until you were married and uh, you had children. So, we're not sure what happened to Paul's wife. We know at the time he wrote Corinth, he was not married, so maybe his wife died. Or maybe when Paul was saved, she left. We don't know. It's just speculation. But of all the people here. You know, and I'm thinking, this is Paul's nephew. Uh, We think he's young, because it said that uh, that, uh, Lysias took him by the hand and brought him to him. Now, Paul's from Tarsus. We know he's from Cilicia. And maybe his nephew, we don't know if his nephew was saved, but we know that he was there either in the synagogue or at the temple or what have you. Maybe he was in school. But Here's where the providence of God comes in. The least that we suspect God is going to use Paul's nephew, of all people we've not even seen yet, to intercept the plans, the plot. And you know, that's providence, isn't it? That's every day. God is in the smallest of details. Every day I'm just picturing this young man, Paul's nephew, waking up. You know, as a child, a a Jew, in a Jewish home, they have their rituals, they have what they do, they have probably their prayers, they have their ceremony, they have everything that they do on a daily basis, just like we do. We have our everyday thing, we have our morning routine, our lunch routine, our afternoon routine, and I'm just picturing his nephew just going about every day, just like he has gone every day before, and on the way to the temple or the synagogue, he hears that there's a plot to kill Paul, his uncle. Had Paul's nephew been five seconds later or five seconds before, maybe he would have never heard those plans. But we know God put him right where he was supposed to be, right at the time that he was supposed to be there. And so we see that he overhears these plans and he tells Lysias. And so actually, he comes to Paul. Now, at that time, being a, a captive of Rome, it's not a Roman prison, they were allowed visitors. So uh, Paul's nephew came to visit Paul in verse 17. And then Paul calls one of the centurions over and says, Look, this young man has something to say to Lysias, verse 18. So he took him to Lysias. Verse 19, then Lysias took him by the hand. Now, either he was young or this is a gesture sometimes when you take somebody by the hand if, uh, to let them know you can trust me. Yeah, I imagine this is kind of a startling environment for this. I mean, the nephew probably thought to himself a couple times, should I go? Should I go? You know, this is... in the middle of this Roman uh, detainment. Uh, It might have been a little intimidating for him. So Lysias took him by the hand, either to calm him or to put, you know, you can put confidence in me. And verse 19, and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is thou, thou hast to tell me. And so Paul's nephew tells him in verse 20 that the Jews have done this plot, they've agreed... To not eat or drink. They've taken this oath that they are going to kill him. And in verse 22, Lysias tells the young man to go ahead and go and charged him see that thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. In God's providence, Lysias has just learned of the plot the Jews have to kill Paul before they ever even sent for him. So now Lysias has this information. He tells the young man, "Not now it's very important that the Jews not know Lysias knows. Otherwise, they could formulate a new plan. And also, for what Lysias is getting ready to do, he's getting ready to take Paul away, the Jews could have kind of questioned his motives for taking Paul away from them, knowing that they were wanting to call him for more information. But in God's providence, we see that he's using Lysias here. Now, let's look at verse 23 through 35. Here is where the plot falls apart. And he called unto him two centurions. Now, a centurion is a hundred soldiers. He called him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore score and ten, that's seventy, and, and uh, spearmen two hundred at the third night of the hour, that's nine p.m., and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting." This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. There's a bit of embellishment there. We'll get back to that. And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bond. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Ant- uh, Antip- uh, Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered... The epistle to the governor presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Lysias proves to be a wise commander, having had this information. Given to him about the plot to assassinate Paul, the act of moving Paul, the act of sending him to Caesarea to his boss, Felix, the governor, was squashed. It squashed the plan, it squashed the plot of the Jews to kill him. Now, it says here, and I kind of picture this if you do the math in verse 23. That is two centurions. Now, we don't know if the two centurions, if he just called the centurions to him, but we know it's 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's 470 men. Now, if you count the two centurions, that's another 200. That's 670 men. Picture, okay, let's just say 500. Picture this escort. For one man, Lysias sends 500 Roman soldiers to escort Paul to make sure Paul's protected between Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now here's the question. And what we know about the providence of God, did Paul really need that much protection? I believe Paul could have just wandered backwards himself to Caesarea, down that road, and he would have been fine. That's the providence of God. What did God tell Paul? Be of good cheer, Paul. Be courageous. He called him by name. God's on his throne. God's in control. You know, I'm just imagining all of these men, just the entourage. And here they put Paul on a horse. The only time we hear of Paul being on a horse, and I kind of have to imagine Paul just witnessing to whoever's near him. He's, He's witnessing the people. He's, he's safe in the arms of the Lord. All, I mean, And so he has nothing to fear. And that's what be of good cheer is. And I got to thinking about that story with Elisha. And how they had come and they had surrounded Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God. And he, Elisha had his, his assistant with him. And, and he comes out of the tent and he's scared. He sees all of the, the, the uh, army, just so many army coming for Elisha, coming for them. And he says, Elisha, Elisha, all these, all these troops are here. And Elisha tells him, he says, there's more for us than there are for them. And he's like, what are you talking about? And then he prayed, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And he went back out of that tent and it said, the word, I love this, it sends chills always down my spine. And in verse 17 of Second uh, Kings chapter 6, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. There is no one that is going to upset. God's plans. God's on His throne, and you know, with providence, you also don't want to go too far and do things, putting tempting fate, tempting God. Uh, I don't go out here and wander in the street and say, "Well, if it's the Lord's will for me to die today," you know, I don't stand in front of a Big Mac truck on seventy-five and say, "If it's the Lord's," who did that? The devil. The devil did that to Jesus, didn't he? The devil said, why don't you cast yourself down off this mountain if you really are the Messiah because the scriptures say that, that you will not dash your foot and the angels will bear you up. And what did Jesus say? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And so we don't tempt fate with providence. We just know God's on his throne. You know, and that's the thing is... And, and, I, I don't want to get into this too much, but I, I kind of feel the same way. Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to get into that. I, I'm just going to leave that. I've got too much to get into uh, to, to get into that, but uh, we'll just leave that for next time. But look at Lysias' letter. Look at the emphasis. Remember what I said? God providentially made it to where Lysias' self interest were also Paul's best interest. Look at the letter. Uh, Lysias is trying to get himself out of hot water. Because remember what he did? Before he knew that Paul was a Roman, he bound him. And then we think maybe he scourged him. We don't know. We know that he was getting ready to. But um, then he found out Paul was a Roman citizen. But look at the letter. Now, it was very it was required that uh, inferior or subordinate, I'm not in the military, I know the, the superior officer had to have a letter during a prison transfer, a prisoner transfer, explaining. Verse 27. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Now, that's a bit of an embellishment, isn't it? He didn't know he was a Roman at first. He didn't find out he was a Roman until later. But he's quite the hero in this letter, isn't he? So, in verse 28, And when I would have known the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him forth into their council whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law. Not Roman law. Of their law. But to have nothing laid to his charge Worthy of death or of bonds. (laughs) If you were a prisoner being transferred, wouldn't you like this letter? If if you were being transferred to a superior officer. This is like, I've not found anything that he's done wrong. In verse 30, except, look at this. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers, the Sanhedrin, the Jews, also to say before thee, Felix, what they had against him, farewell. So Lysias said, hey, if you want to continue to pursue Paul, you have to take it up with Felix. But look at the emphasis, which Felix, with the, uh, Lysias gives here to the superiors, the only reason at this point, most noble Felix, that I have written unto you. And the reason, the only reason, Paul's still under detainment is the Jews want to kill a Roman citizen. That's all he said. (laughs) That's all he said. And it's just the... God will, again, he will use the smallest. He'll use human government. He'll use laws. He will use a road detour. He'll use... A road being closed. He'll use somebody in your life. He'll use sickness. He'll use death. He'll use birth. He'll use marriage. He'll use everything that you have in your life to accomplish His will. Everything. And there is nothing too small a detail He's not in. And so, you know, that is something that I want us to leave... And exercise. I want us to put our providence antennas up. This little exercise. Look back on your life. And I was doing this earlier, and you know, like we have a timeline of Paul. It's real nice. We have a schematic. We have, we could do a chart of Paul's life. Do that to yours. You know, I mean, you don't have to write it out, but in your mind, just think about your life. Think about how you were born this century, this millennia, where you were born. Think about who your parents were. Think about who God has put your parents to be. Think about your childhood. If you went to school or you went home school, maybe you had a stay-at-home mom and uh, what a blessing that it was to have a stay-at-home mom. And think about your childhood. Think about your teenage life. Think about, just go back. Just write yourself a timeline and look back and look where God has been directing your whole life as a beautiful symphony. Every note that's been played. No small, too small a detail in your life was there. April and I, we went to Sevierville as you know. And we have taken the Knoxville bypass so many times because we go to Georgia, and that's the way we go to Georgia. We take the 275-640 East bypass around Knoxville, and then we shoot over to Asheville, North Carolina, doing 60 or 40 East. For some reason, this time, we got off on the wrong road. That is the first time we have ever got off. And not only did we get off on the wrong road, here we're trying to recalibrate Google Maps and, and this and that. And, and we're like, oh no, where are we going? Where are we going? We stayed on that road for a while and then we ended up back on 60, or back on 40 East eventually. But it knocked about five minutes off our time. Well, not, maybe more than that. Maybe probably like 10, 20. And you know, I got to thinking, that was so Strange that that's the first time we've ever done that, as many times as we've done that, it made me wonder, is there something God's preventing? Or is there something God's intending? Providence, there's those two questions. What did God prevent? And what does God intend? God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for all of us. And I love that this is going into the theme for Vacation Bible School on Saturday. I did not plan this. (laughs) You know, there's, there's no accidents in your life at all. Now, look back and look at the hand of God. Look back how he has called you by name. He loves you. He knows you. You're his. You're one of his sheep. And he knows and he calls you by name. And somewhere in the... and Why did I have mom and dad? What was the blessing that I have today? What was I taught? What was the Lord teaching me? What did the Lord equip me with in my past? And they may not all be good things. There may be bad things in your past that you thought there'd no good c- could come from, but is there something today that could be a blessing? Having learned that lesson, gone through what you went through, what did God intend? What did God prevent? And what did God intend? And if you take you go home and you think about your life, it don't, I don't, it doesn't matter what it is. The, when you learned an instrument, your marriage, your children, um, where you live, even the car you buy. How can the Lord? How can What's the intention here? What is God's plan? And that's the thing. We all know God has a purpose for us. But what we need to seek is the plan. Amen. What is God's plan? How is God going to use what's in my life today to bring Him glory? How is God going to use what's in my past today to bring Him glory? If nothing's on accident and He's equipped in me, for some reason He's equipped you for today. He has equipped you for the morrow as well. But what is it today? And I pray that you pray that. God's providence is full-time. It is a full-time thing. Providence is not part-time. You know, us taking that wrong road wasn't just some random act of providence. God decided to do on a Thursday. God's providence is full time. The fact that our tire didn't blow out was God's providence. The fact that we were able to get there safely was God's providence. And when you think of his plan, the bigger purpose in the plan. Oh, I I pray the Lord has blessed you with this. And think about all that has happened to Paul. Ever since Paul was saved, people are trying to kill him. And he, he witnessed in Damascus. Somebody tried to kill him. He went to Jerusalem. Somebody tried to lock him up. He went to Iconium. Somebody tried to arrest him. He went to Lystra, and he was, they thought that they did kill him. <laughs> they stoned him. And now he's here, and Lord, this is... Whew. Uh, and the, but Jesus, Jesus appears to Paul multiple times. And isn't it wonderful how he appears to us? He may not appear to us visually, But when we need comfort, He always gives comfort. And when He gives us that comfort, He gives us the comfort to know God's on His throne. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Lord, what is it? How can I bring you glory in this circumstance? And He'll bless you. There'll be no more guesses. There'll be no more, I don't know what happened. I I don't get it. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't imagine why that would happen to me. Why would God put me through that? There's no more confusion when you have your providence antennas up. Lord, what do you intend? What do you intend? Alright. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the day. Thank you, Lord, for each one who is here tonight, who we've assembled under your name and under your authority. Well, Father, just to praise you and To worship you and thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask, Father, that you'll just be with each one we mentioned on the prayer list. And, Father, many more that were not mentioned tonight who we pray for. Father, we know you're on your throne. And, Lord, may you use our lives to be a help or be a testimony or be a guide to them. Father, we, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the comfort which you give each of us, having called each of us by name. And we know one day, Father, when you return, and then you return for us, and we'll be eternally with you And that, that eternal day. Father, how we'll worship you. And we'll be together forever. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to serve you. Father, may we just be ready. And Father, may we, be, may we have the desire to bring you glory, to always bring you glory in our lives and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's all stand, please, and we'll just have one verse of invitation.